Hello, and welcome to the NPRD podcast with nurse practitioner and registered dietitian Robin Kivit. Eating disorders, body image, medicine, they are all interconnected. But with so many programs, techniques, and advice to choose from, it's easy to be overwhelmed. Robin, with more than 25 years of experience as a nurse practitioner and registered dietitian, offers help and hope for everyone, families, children, and adults. Along with veteran talk show host and good friend, Jordan Rich, Robin invites you to learn much more right here on the NPRD podcast. Hi there. Welcome to another edition of the NPRD. We are super lucky in May to have John Sharp. He is a psychiatrist on staff at Harvard Medical School and David Geffen School of Medicine in UCLA. Thanks, John, for being on today. My pleasure, Robin. Jordan, thank you. Thank you. So we're going to get right into it today. I met John, well, I think I knew of you for a while, but then I met you in person when we used to do that in 2016. And at that time, I was looking to start prescribing in my private practice. And you graciously agreed to supervise. What that means is in Massachusetts, as in still is the case in other states, nurse practitioners need supervising physicians. We do not anymore. That doesn't mean John and I don't have supervision anymore because we do, because I feel like it's always best to keep learning. It's been great because I've been able to really reach patients the way I've wanted to in the private practice. So thank you, John, for all you're of these welcome, years. Robin. You're awesome. And, you know, you're right. It does help to keep learning. I remember when I was a resident, graduated, uh, a wise supervisor of mine said, you know, you ought to you know, continue with supervision. It, it, it'll make you a, a better clinician, you know, keep you more engaged. And, and it, it's been true for me in my practice over the years as well. Well, we appreciate you being on today, and the topic we're going to really dive into is ketamine, which is legal to prescribe and something that we're both using in our practices and something I've learned a lot from you on. (laughs) (laughs) We prescribe each other ketamine. Um, That would be funny. But I'd love to hear, you know, I know you just gave a talk on this and you've given other talks on this and have been at the forefront here in terms of this in your practice. I'll say, which I, you know, you've taught this to me and I've read and learned in other places that ketamine is not a first line therapy for depression. Am I correct there? You know, Robin, it probably will soon be. It's not yet. So I think in terms of our listeners, yeah, usually it's for people who tried other attempts at relieving depression first. Um, but we can make the case, I can talk about this later, that it, it could be something to try sooner rather than later. So that's interesting to me because as I've researched, you know, ketamine can be prescribed in different ways. Is it fair to say one being the IV route, which is usually given twice a week for a number of weeks and then tapered down from there after a careful assessment and another intranasally. But that the folks I have spoken to have said, at least right now, they're only having patients come in for the IV route after they've tried other things. So I'm curious as to more of that. Yeah, let me provide a little perspective. Um, First of all, 
of all, ketamine is an old drug. Yes, it's, old. Uh, an anesthetic agent. Yep. Um, the anesthesiologists use it every day in ORs and procedure rooms, and they love it because it's safe. You don't have to monitor oxygen or blood pressure too closely. There's just not much to worry about as far as anesthesia is concerned. And that's high doses. In our doses, much lower, 0.5 milligrams per milliliter, IV or intranasally, patients um, don't have much to worry about at all. You know, they have a kind of a slightly kind of out of it feeling, um, which they don't have to participate in. You don't have to, you know, have some kind of transformational, like psychological, like journey to go along with the ketamine. The ketamine just needs to get into your brain uh, and do its thing. Uh, and people feel okay about that um, and can, you know, usually get a ride home and be perfectly fine. And after, like you say, twice a week for two weeks or three times a week, after two or three weeks, receive the full benefit of what would be an antidepressant treatment that could take months. Months, yeah. Pills. Noting to, you, to your points earlier, you know, ketamine has been also used in PD situations, so pediatric situations, um, for a long time, anesthetically. And then the difference, if I'm saying this correctly, is that IV is something that the human brain and body receives 100% versus intranasal would be about 50%. Is that correct? True. And if you swallowed it as a pill, it would be about 15% yeah. or 10%, which is the reason we try to go like around the gut. Right. So when you take a look at journals, like if someone was sitting listening to us and thinking, wait a minute, wasn't that like a club drug in the 80s? First of all, that would date you if you thought that, <laughs> because you'd have to have been around in the 80s. Uh, and the answer is yes, it was used as like a dissociative kind of party drug, but it, it wasn't super fun because people just kind of basically felt out of it. Well, and to um, your point, I wonder how effective it actually was if it went through the gut, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, much less. That's true. Um, but so when you take a look at like, well, what is the science on this? If you took a look over the past, say, three or four years, first you'd see reports in kind of fringy journals by a bunch of kind of, you know, people just interested in, like, pushing the boundaries. And now it's in our most prestigious journals by our most prestigious researchers, you know, large-scale trials, big ends, really super validating the safety and efficacy for depression, you know, for possibly depression and anxiety, for possibly uh, addiction, and, and most certainly for PTSD. One yeah. ketamine's best effects is to help people get over the trauma associated with you know, something that they lived through, including the trauma of depression. You know, not like something unworldly necessarily, but just the trauma of being really sick and not being able to function. Uh, ketamine really helps move past that. So ketamine is an NMDA receptor agonist. Can you speak to that? A little bit more because what I understand about that myself is it's a glutamate type receptor that increases synaptic plasticity and increases protein synthesis. So many words. Mm. It's similar to, you know, the mechanisms of blocking, it's like blocking serotonin and monoamine transmission and bringing about that opiate response. Is any of that reminiscent of what ketamine does or is? you've done some research correctly. Um, so that mouthful that you just said there is, is a lot to unpack. And you're right. So I just want to back up two steps. What's very interesting 
and to me, you know, kind of not that great is the fact that most of our antidepressants are based on this old, quote, monoamine hypothesis, where we're thinking that serotonin and norepinephrine are really, you know, the bee's knees, the things that really are making people get undepressed. But it turns out that's not true. It turns out they start some kind of cascade that has a lot of further downstream effects in exactly the same way that you were describing. So ultimately, you know, serotonin and norepinephrine aren't even in, like, mood centers. So it's not the pathway necessarily. It's just the only one that we had access to. Ketamine accesses for us this, I think, better pathway, the NMDA, which stands for N-methyl-D-aspartite pathway, which leads to the expression, like you said, of neurotrophic, meaning growth factors uh, in parts of the brain um, that allow for healing and recovery from depression. More connections between neurons. The, the term that I like, it's another mouthful, but is it allows for a rearborization of the dendritic trees. Okay, so, so it helps people grow back. Right. You know, and, connections and mood centers that relieves depression. And that's what you and I have talked about in terms of then, okay, you, you're, you're assessed, it, you're an appropriate candidate. Folks get their infusions, and then if there's a response, what I feel like you and I have talked about in the past, John, is either then their other usual Western medicine works better, and or do we continue with intranasal ketamine? Yeah, so when the response works great, and it does most all the time, the question then becomes, okay, how do I you know, help this person stay well? And... One option would be ketamine maintenance, so somebody gets an infusion, say, every month uh, instead of several times a week. Another would be going to ketamine nasal, so they get one or two sprays in each nostril at bedtime, and they can continue that as maintenance um, for as long as necessary. Um, another would be to go back to some treatments that didn't work before when they were so get-out depressed. Now they can work, and we've seen this um, with ECT, you know, another, right. like, element of procedural psychiatry um, where people were not able to get relief from antidepressants. They get ECT, they get well, and then they can go back on medicines that maybe couldn't work before, but now that they're healthy, they can work again. So how to help your patient stay well is um, a bit of the art and science still. Uh, you can develop a customized plan based on you know what you talk about with your patient and, and what you both agree makes the most sense. Well, and also, you know, you you work as a psychiatrist who prescribes and does therapy, and I think it's important to note that after ketamine, after someone maybe has felt that shift in the neurotransmitters of their brain, that those that that work can be then prolonged with engagement in continued mm. therapy. Engagement in continued therapy and also engagement in continued life. You right. know, I have a patient now actually with a, a rather severe restrictive eating disorder on a couple of different antidepressants uh, who's seeing me for therapy as well. And because of some situational stress, her husband's job was called into question and the source of their you know, livelihood, um, she got more depressed. And so I sent her for ketamine and she's. Um, relieved and she's feeling well. And so now, instead of lying around on the couch, she's able to, you know, get out in the garden 
and get out and take walks and come see me in person rather than just like on the phone and in Zoom. And so her greater engagement in, in life and in therapy is, I think, what's going to provide her the, quote, ketamine maintenance. John, I have a, a, an observation and a question. This is fascinating. Um, and, yeah. and the observation is more of uh, a cultural one. And I remember when Prozac became the poster child on every magazine cover. It was the story of the decade when Prozac became popular. Are we likely to see, do you see any inclination that we're likely to see ketamine receive that kind of attention? Or is it a sort of a a soft open? That's part one. And part two, are there any studies on the long-term use effects of ketamine that we know of so far? Okay, great question. So, you're right, Jordan. In 1988, when Prozac came out, it really ushered in, you know, the Prozac revolution, um, where you know everybody was talking about the SSRIs and Prozac and the Prozac effect. Um, and I do believe that uh, you know our pharmacologic pipeline has been kind of dry. You know, um, there haven't really been like great new meds. There's been like tweaks on existing meds, um, similar kinds of stuff, kind of dripping out the pipe. But this is a revolution, Jordan. This, I really do think, is the beginning of a, a change, uh, like you say, akin to what Prozac brought us. Um, you know, this alternative pathway, um, an MDA pathway, and brain-derived you know, trophic factors. And, you know, we're looking at things we didn't look at before. Like, we're looking at something in the brain called the resting state, which is so interesting. It's not you know, the activation of, you know, when you're trying to solve a math problem or work through emotional pain or do it or achieve something. It's what's going on in your head when you're not thinking, you know, the kind of Mm -hmm. internal introspective baseline that we have. And ketamine, and we can talk about it another time if you want, um, the serotonin amines, meaning psilocybin and MDMA, they affect resting state, uh, which I think is going to be a more direct uh, way to relieve depression and to stay healthy and well. So I think it's the beginning of a revolution in psychiatry. Absolutely. To your point, John, using it in the the patient that you have, you know, with the patients that I see, the eating disorder patients, we look at, you know, are they medically stable first? Where's their nutritional st- stability? Um, are they sober? Um, correct as some of the prerequisites, you know, where's their level of safety? Um, But it's interesting because an eating disorder patient, sometimes I feel like they don't like the resting state. And I don't mean that in like moving bodies versus not moving bodies, but actually being with their thoughts. Yes, it's true. It's true. And uh, we have to help them with that, right? Because you can't only cope by doing, you know, sometimes you have to be still and and be subjected to your sense of being, you know, and that's what our therapy can address. And I think that's where these um, revolutionized, you know, medications, kind of reimagined medications. This is a reimagination of ketamine. You know, and when we talk about psilocybin, it's it's psychoactive, not psychedelic. In low doses, it's a reimagination of that, and MDMA. And it's going to help people with, yeah, when they're just alone with their thoughts or when they're just being. Uh, more than I think we've been able to do before. And just going back to what Jordan was asking about the safety, and then I know we have to wrap up. Um, you know, like you spoke of, and I know I've learned about, that ketamine's been used for so long as an anesthesia, and 
we're talking about it in, you know, very different doses. So I think the safety is is clear as long as that assessment, the appropriate assessment is there. Um, and certainly, oh, it's super clear. Yeah. I mean, we have to worry about risk management all the time, but really not much at all with ketamine. You know, I mean, you could have a burst appendix, you know, in the Saharan desert, and somebody can come at you and give you IM ketamine yeah. until you're unconscious, and then take out your appendix, sew it up, and right. hopefully you'll be fine. Well, because you know, it's yeah. it's stable in heat and cold. That's why it's been able to be used like that. That's my understanding. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's being used creatively um, kind of behind the scenes. Like, like for example, uh, patients with COVID who were sick enough to have to get into um, an ICU and get intubated um, are often given ketamine as they're being extubated and as they're leaving the ICU, in part to try to get through and past some of the trauma of just being that sick. Um, so it's it's not like really a new use. It's just like we're identifying it more clearly. The spotlight's on it now, you know. And in mental health, I think it'll have a, a broad benefit. So just to kind of wrap up around how we may use ketamine longer term after someone does participate in it, either with IV or intranasal, in that it really can help support the therapy and vice versa and can enhance that experience of trust and relationship with the body and that vulnerability leading to the greater change. I think that's what you were referencing in your patient example. It's true. It's true. And the, the, I guess the, the final point I wanted to leave you with, I mentioned this before, but people often get um, a little bit confused about it, is that the patient receiving ketamine does not have to participate in the experience in some kind of Correct. active, guided yeah. way. You know, you just have to let it in your system, maybe kind of feel a little spacey. It doesn't matter. You can listen to a podcast. You can listen to music. It'll be over before you know it. And then you kind of feel like your normal self, you know, either immediately or within a few hours. And, and then you'll get the benefit, which is this uh, kind of sense of relief, sense of unburdening, mm-hmm. um, sense of emergence, you know, from the kind of more rigid and sort of negative ways that you were um, suffering. Which allows a person to continue to do their work in their therapy, therapy with their skill and in their life. Yeah, confidence. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, with more confidence and more of a sense of uh, achievement, you know, um, more positivity, which you can really leverage in a lot of ways, you know, to help people, you know, be healthy and enjoy life. John, thank you so much. I really appreciate you as always. And I think we need to pick this up again. Um, as we get through the summer. so Let's do it. Thank you, Robin. I appreciate you very much. Thank you, Jordan. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Take good care. All right. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye. So I know John just said goodbye, but I wanted to add sort of a disclaimer at the end that there really isn't a magic bullet. So we do have this emerging, you know, use of ketamine. The science has been there, yet it's really taking the possible use of ketamine plus therapy, plus perhaps using other Western medicine again or ongoing, plus, you know, getting out in the world and trying to do your own work. Anyone who's gone through depression or is dealing with it knows it's it's more than just a pill and it has to be followed carefully and closely. Yeah. And and you gotta put the work in, but it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. So what a great edition of the or episode we I was absolutely captivated. I know we're talking about something that you and I are very close to, but I have a feeling this will be like all of your episodes very well received. <laughs> Thanks, Jordan. 
Thank you for joining us for the NPRD podcast with Robin Kivit. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate and review us and share this valuable podcast with friends and family. Help and hope is found here. For more, just go to robinkivit.com. That's R-O-B-Y-N-K-I-E-V-I-T.com. Or check out the NPRD.com. 